Well, I'm sitting here today looking at our November church newsletter that we're mailing out, and the front of it deals with the living Christmas tree, and that, the dates on that are December the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. And a special guest this year, we have a guitarist, Rodrigo Rodriguez, and uh, Rodrigo is a world-renowned guitarist. He was here at the church last year for our friend day. He's coming back. He will be playing and performing with our choir, our orchestra, and the Living Christmas Tree this year. Thousands of you come every year. And I want to remind you so you can write these dates down, okay? So write it down right now, December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. There's no admission charge, and there are no tickets. You come, you come early, you get you a good seat. However, I want you to bring as much food as you can afford to bring. And uh, I want you to get a whole sack of groceries if you can and bring them because we collect one of, if not the largest, collection of food for needy people here in the PD area. And then we distribute it through local agencies here, the Lighthouse, the Manor House, the various agencies in the community that help people with, with their needs. And uh, we, we last year collected, I think, about five tons of food. This year we would like to even up that. And last year we were able to help uh, about 450 families with 50 pound boxes of food each. So that means that you people were very generous and you brought a lot of food. We'll be collecting it from now through the holidays. And uh, so you come, come to the Christmas tree you're going to have a wonderful, enjoyable evening of Christmas music, and we're going to help a lot of people if you'll bring the food as well. I know that we'll be looking forward to seeing you, and God bless you until then.
Well, thank you, everyone concerned, and what a wonderful song. I bless your name. That's why we're here, isn't it? In your Bible today, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, please. The book of Philippians in God's Word, chapter number 2. The subject is a biblical worldview. You've heard us talk about that a lot through the last few months. It's one of the main things that we're trying to do here. It's why we're teaching through the Bible in our curriculum, the particular curriculum we chose. And uh, it's a big emphasis right now, a big burden on my heart, that our people have a biblical worldview. Let's talk about it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, if you would stand to your feet with me as we read God's Word. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I use the word worldview quite a lot. And where does the Bible use the word worldview? Well, it's not in the Bible. As many words we use are not in the Bible. But the idea of a worldview is right there in that phrase, let this mind, mind not referring to the brain, referring to the way of thinking, the pattern of thought that a person has. So let this worldview be in you, or let this pattern of thinking, this habit of thinking, way of thinking, let this philosophy, if you will, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. What condescension, what humility. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Verse 15. And that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Well, what a description of our nation today, a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's the scripture. That, Paul said, I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. Thank you, and you may be seated. A biblical worldview. For about two months now, or maybe a little more, I have been speaking on the subject of the Acts 2 church. And we have gone over and over to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and analyzed the characteristics of that first church that remained after the Lord Jesus went back to heaven. 
I've pointed out five things about that church repeatedly. I repeat them again because I want you to know those. I don't want you to have to look them up. I'd like for you to know them by heart right off the top of your head. What was that church like? Because that church is our pattern church. That church is our model. In fact, my vision for the Florence Baptist Temple is to have a church like the Acts 2 church. We want to model ourselves after that, that church there that we find described in detail in Acts chapter 2 through down about verse, or chapter 8. Well, first of all, those people had a great vision. They were big thinkers. They weren't just thinking about who they had there and how to minister to one another, though they did that very well. They were thinking about reaching the whole world, taking the gospel to every single individual, every creature is the way the Lord Jesus said it. And secondly, they were a church that prayed. I mean, they didn't just pray formal prayers. They didn't just pray and say grace before they ate their meal. They didn't just pray, now I lay me down to sleep. These, to these people, prayer was the very breath of their life. Every time we turn around, they're praying here. Prayer was a frequent activity. Personally for them, they depended upon God's power that they felt they got through prayer. Thirdly, they witnessed. They were not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ or of the gospel. Everywhere we see them going, they're witnessing for Christ. It was not a church program. It wasn't Monday night at 6.30. It wasn't Sunday school visitation. It was everywhere they went as a lifestyle. They were proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that through him one could find forgiveness, a relationship with God, and eternal life. And then they were filled with the Spirit. Over and over it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. Not filled like we fill a bottle of water, but controlled by the Spirit of God. And this produced in their lives something we call the fruit of the Spirit. Characteristics, character qualities. A character that resembles and looks like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then... These people had what I call a, or they made disciples. They focused upon making disciples in their life. And at our church, our goal is not just to win people of the Lord Jesus, but it's to help people come to the point, develop them, train them, preach and teach and get people to the point where they are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just nominal, casual Christianity. That's not worth a dime. I'll tell you that today. If that's all you have, there's going to come a time when you're going to see, I've made a mistake. I need something more than my life, in my life than just church attendance and nominal casual Christianity. And so these people became followers of Christ, willing to even give their lives and to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, In trying to make disciples, and that's where I'm going with this worldview thing this morning, in trying to make disciples, then we have kind of a little portrait that we've established here. There's some posters down here in the halls, and you can see them, what a disciple looks like. Uh, 
And the first thing that a disciple looks like is they have a biblical worldview. In addition, their lives have been transformed. They're changed people. They've overcome some of the sin that used to beset them and the, and the things that would trip them up and the wrong attitudes that they have. They've overcome. They're growing. They're not perfect at all, but they are people who are growing and becoming Christ-like as they go through the journey of life. And so, They have a biblical worldview. A disciple has a biblical worldview. A disciple is transformed. A disciple witnesses and a disciple serves the Lord. They become a part of the team. They're not just church attenders. They come in here and put their shoulder to the wheel and help us in the greatest of all causes, the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk about specifically just that one thing, a biblical worldview. And as I said, the Bible uses this term, the mind of Christ, or mind, a way of thinking, a habit of thought. It uses that to describe this thing of a worldview. There's a couple of other verses that I would share with you, and I'm not going to look them up. You can just simply write them there if you would like, and you will be able to find them. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it talks about a worldview in these words. It says, be transformed, changed, by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by a renewed mind, by learning to think differently, specifically by learning to think biblically. And then in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, is one of the classic verses on our fault life. As a man thinketh, or as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. You show me how a person thinks. You tell me how you think, and I will know already what you're going to do. It'll be very, very predictable. It's like the computer. You get the software, and it drives every decision the computer makes. Garbage in, they used to say, the programmers, and garbage out. And what they meant simply was if you put the wrong software into the computer, you're going to get the wrong answers from the computer. And in our world, if you put the wrong stuff in your brain, you're going to reflect that in your life. And if you put the right thought patterns in your brain, i.e., namely, God's Word, then you're going to think biblically. You're going to have a biblical worldview. Now, number one, I want you to know that everybody here already has a worldview. Everyone in this building already has a worldview. You have habits of thinking that you have developed through the years. And so all of us have a worldview. A worldview is how we interpret life. And so I read the paper this morning and I interpret what I read. And I interpret it according to my worldview. And I have a conversation with you today. And as we have a conversation... I interpret what you're saying through my worldview. If you could think of it like this, it's the lens through which we view the world. And yesterday I was driving. It was a bright, sunny day. I came over here after driving in my car for a while, and I went to the ball games out here. And you know what I did before I got out of my car? I put on my sunglasses. Now, some people wear sunglasses to be cool. I didn't wear mine to be cool. It was already cool. I wore mine because the sun was 
affecting my eyes. And it affected everything that I saw. I looked at the field. I looked at the players. I looked at the crowd. And everything was colored by the lenses through which I was looking. And in the same way is true of life. Our worldview colors everything that we look at. And it's based on our basic beliefs. The way you believe affects the way you interpret life. Our values, what is important to us? What is the most important thing to me in life? That affects my worldview. And assumptions that I have... Because I go into every situation with some basic assumptions, don't I? And my past experiences color my worldview. Now, historically, in Western civilization, and in the United States particularly, we have had a Judeo-Christian worldview. In other words, we looked at the world through the lens of the Scripture. We interpreted life according to what the Bible said about life. We had a biblical worldview as a culture up until about 19 and 20 some in this country, and then it began to gradually fade away. Today, America does not have a biblical worldview. If you have a biblical worldview, you will be unlike Most of the people that are your neighbors and your friends, you will stand out as the scripture I read said, you will be a light in a dark, dark culture because the culture around us has become a secular culture. What does secular mean? The word secular comes from a Latin word, which means worldly. And the idea of secularism is that our actions and our attitudes that we have, have no religious or no spiritual uh, uh, significance at all. When you see someone who is a secularist, it doesn't mean that they're an immoral going out and doing violence to other people person. I don't mean that at all. What it means is that religion and Christianity and spiritual matters have no significance to them. It just It just doesn't count. So they don't think a thing in the world about adapting the ideas and philosophies of the world. They never think to check their Bible and say, is this valid or not? They just live their life and religion has no place in it of any consequence at all. Now, I've seen a change in America from that Christian biblical worldview to a totally secular culture that we live in this morning. Now, stay with me. I want you to follow through with me. I remember as a boy going to church. We went to church, and just about everybody that I knew went to church. I mean, if you didn't go to church, people wondered what was wrong with you. And if you wanted to buy something on Sunday, you really had to look hard to find it. And you better be able to buy it in the one gas station that was open in town or the one drugstore that was open in town because everything else was closed down in honor of the Lord's Day. I remember that. Now, I know you, you, some of y'all said, you probably remember Columbus. Yeah, I probably, but... But but it wasn't that long ago when you couldn't go shopping on Sunday. It was the Lord's day. The whole culture respected him for that. And I remember going to school. 
And hanging in every classroom was the Ten Commandments. And every day the teacher read to us out of the Bible. And then every day, every one of us stood up and repeated the Lord's Prayer. It was a different world. I can't tell you how different. Mom and dad got ready to go on a trip. And dad said, Hallie, you need to lock the house. And after a few minutes, Hallie said, I don't know where the key is. And we left and the house was open. And we came home and everything was intact and they didn't even worry about it while we were gone. That was the day when there was a respect for God and Scripture, a Judeo-Christian culture. But in the 1960s, man, it changed. And that's when I was enrolled as a, I graduated from high school and I enrolled in college. We had three assassinations during the 60s. Two Kennedys and Martin Luther King. We had Woodstock a farm up in New York where all the big names of rock and roll gathered together and they built a stage and young people went from all over the world. And it was not just a harmless concert. It was a statement that we are kicking off the restraints of our heritage and our past and we're going to have sexual freedom and we're going to smoke dope And we're going to have an orgy in the mud up here. And that's exactly what happened. Have you ever looked at at, at the pictures of it? Peter, Paul, and Mary's son. Pretty innocuous group, particularly by today's standards. But they made the statement for the 60s. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. All the parents didn't think anything about it, just like they don't today. They would never think that they ought to analyze the lyrics of the music their kids are listening to. And what did blowing in the wind mean? It it meant there are no answers. The answers are blowing in the wind. We have no authority. We have no guidestone. We have no core. All we care about is freedom. Do your thing. And then we went to the 70s. And ideas have consequences. And so in the 70s, with the blowing in the wind thing now firmly established, we went to the next step. And the Supreme Court says it's all right to take the life of a baby while the baby's still in the womb. Roe v. Wade. And in the 70s, we had Watergate. We found out that even our president can lie and commit a crime. And disillusionment went another level deeper. And then we had Vietnam, where 50,000 men died. And then we found out it was all about politics, that we could have won that war. We didn't intend to win that war. And the skepticism deepened. Suspicion became the norm. In the 80s, we had Ronald Reagan. Thank God for Ronald Reagan. He gave us a brief reprieve. 
and uh, put the pressure on the Soviet Union and the evil empire actually folded up. I've seen this in my lifetime. I've seen this while I've pastored this church. In the 1990s, the Cold War finally ended. The wall came down. Looked like we were making progress. And then we had to impeach the president for lying to the Congress. And then we had the new millennium. And the new millennium came. And it did, we hardly got into it until we had 9-11. And now we have terrorism and fear and hatred from radical Islam like the world has rarely seen. You see, in my lifetime, I've seen all this. And I've seen a total repudiation of the Judeo-Christian worldview. That's what I've just described for you in about seven or eight minutes. A total repudiation of the Bible. America leaving its Christian roots and becoming a secular state. And it will have consequences. So far, we were so strong as a nation that we've been able to continue on the momentum from the past. But let me tell you, my friend, the momentum is about to run out. Last Sunday, Charles Stanley stood in his pulpit and opened his message with these words. We have chosen sin to fulfill us, and we have rejected godliness as God's way of being fulfilled. Living a godly life by the principles of the Word of God is a fulfilling life, but living according to the ways of the world, disobedience to God's Word and rebellion, and turning our minds and hearts away from the Word of God, we now find ourselves facing judgment. We live in one of the most perilous. Perilous means dangerous. Dangerous times in the life of the nation. And the Bible still says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. And whatsoever a man soweth, and whatsoever a nation soweth, it will reap. The law of sowing and reaping. Principles don't change. Principles of right and wrong and godliness and immorality and so on, they never change. We don't break the law of God. It breaks us. It takes a while. God in his grace and mercy will let us skate for a while and get by with things. But ultimately, we don't break the law of God. The law of God breaks us. And today, we live with this huge confrontation now between these competing worldviews, a secular world that can live without any religious or spiritual significance at all, without giving any significance to spiritual things at all, like our culture is by and large. And over here, on the other hand, we can live with a biblical worldview. And whether you're talking about politics, those two worldviews are represented. If you're talking about education today in America, those two worldviews are represented. They're in conflict. If you're talking about corporate America, those two worldviews are represented. 
Just this last week or two, one of the largest banks in America has now had to, de- to apologize to their depositors and admit that they were lying and cheating and rigging the numbers. And it was kind of went under the radar because of the election, but I thought you could trust your bank. Not in a secular world because there's no real standard of right or wrong anymore. There's no basis for right or wrong. It's what you can get by with now. If it's in the military, it's become an experiment for social engineering. If it's sexuality, we are so morally confused, we can't even decide which bathroom we ought to go in. Be not deceived. God will not be mocked. Now, Maybe I picked a bad day to preach this because it's cloudy and rainy and cold outside. And we had a great victory last week and wonderful. Over 2,000 people coming and people being saved and just wonderful thing. But it is the time to preach it because it's the truth. It's the truth of God's word. And we are in a battle for the soul of the nation and we're in a battle for our own souls Will secularism win out, or will a biblical worldview win? Well, I've spent a long time describing the problem. Let me quickly get to it and show you what a biblical worldview, what I mean, and I will just be able to scratch the surface and give you a couple of things today. But turn all the way to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I marked it in my Bible with this little marker here today, so it won't take me a long time to find it. And if you have to go to the index for Genesis 1, it's pretty safe to say you don't have a biblical worldview yet. But we'll help you get there, won't we? We'll help you get there, sure. All right, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Adrian Rogers, my favorite preacher. Have I ever said that? And Adrian said something beautiful about this verse. He said, the key to the entire Bible hangs right at the front door. The key to the entire Bible hangs right here at the front door. And he means right here by Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It's the key to the whole Bible. It's the key to the Christian faith. It's the key to a biblical worldview today, folks. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Everybody say it with me. It's just 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's not a more important verse in all the Bible because that verse is the foundation of a biblical worldview. A simple declarative statement. Simple words and only 10 of them. And yet on it hangs the Christian faith today in our worldview. Notice there's no introduction. It just starts. Notice there's no explanation given. Just the facts. It doesn't make an argument for why there is a God. It offers no apology for saying God created the heaven and the earth, and we're sorry, but all of no, it doesn't go into all that. It doesn't produce any evidence. It just makes a simple declarative statement. It doesn't offer any proof. Now, let me tell you five reasons why this is true. Doesn't do that. It just says, In the beginning, the first thing that ever happened 
in the universe, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, this is not the beginning of history. This is not the first thing that ever happened. Because long before Genesis 1-1, God already existed because God is eternal. Amen? So this is not the beginning of everything. This is the beginning of the universe. This is the beginning of time as we know it. It's the beginning of creation. It's not the beginning of God. There never was a time when God did not exist. God is eternal. And notice, if you will, it begins with God, the fourth word of the Bible, in the beginning God. It's a Hebrew word, Elohim, and it simply means the strong one. In the beginning, the strong one. You talk about strong. The mighty one, the almighty one. He created the universe, the heavens and the earth. That would be the entire universe. In the beginning, the strong one created everything. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the absolute foundation of a biblical worldview as opposed to that of a secularist. Because what would a secularist believe? In the beginning, there was a big bang. Well, what was before that? What banged? Where did the materials for the bang come from? And so the secularist has to make certain assumptions, even though he doesn't want to admit there was a God or was anything before that. The Bible begins with God. And what is he like? He's eternal. He already existed. As I said, he will always exist. He's infinite, meaning he has no limits to his knowledge. He knew how to make a tree or a rock or an ocean or a giraffe or a sunset or a human being. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Jesus said he knows the number of hairs on your head. But there's seven billion of us on the planet. Does Jesus know, does God know how many hairs are on the heads of all the people that live on the earth, all seven billion of them right now? He does because he's God. He's omniscient. He knows that multiplied by the square root of 124. There's not anything that's conceivable in the realm of knowledge that Almighty God doesn't know. He is infinite in his knowledge. If he were not infinite in his knowledge, how could he create a universe that works wonderfully and perfectly? He not only is infinite in his knowledge, he's infinite in his power, which means he has the power to bring about what he knows. And so he said, I think I'll have... A mountain over there. Mountain. And the mountain materialized. God created it out of nothing. God created it. We use the fancy word ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He spoke it into being. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? I'd go home today and my wife would, I'd say, okay, now what kind of house do you want, Norma? Just pick your dream. Okay. Let there be. And there would be the house. 
God could do that. Infinite in his knowledge and in his wisdom and in his power. And not only that, he's a person. God is eternal and he's an infinite person. A person meaning not with a body like us, but that he knows everything. He thinks. He feels. He loves us and he gets angry at evil. He knows. He thinks. He feels. And he acts into history. He always is acting on our benefit. Now, notice something else here. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Listen to me. If you can accept this verse right here, you won't have any trouble with any verse that follows it throughout the entire Bible. If you can believe Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, everything else is a piece of cake. It's easy after that. Because if you can believe that Almighty God, who eternally existed, spoke, and it was so, and created a universe with all the seas and the mountains and the animals and the birds and the people, everything that is, if you accept that, it's not hard to believe, John three sixteen, that that same God loved the world and gave his only begotten son. It's not hard to believe that he could send his son and through the miracle of a virgin birth, he could come to the earth and live and be our savior. So when I say that's the foundation of everything, you see, because it's the foundation of creation itself. We believe... Genesis 1.1, it is the foundation of our biblical worldview. Do you know what the greatest evidence of God, that there is a God is? Well, it's right here if you can accept Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. You see, here we have, a, here we have an effect. The effect is the universe, the heavens, and the earth. All these wonderful things in creation, whether it's stars and moons or animals or people, whatever it may be, we have this effect, and this effect requires a cause. You don't believe that things happen randomly, and yet that's what evolution teaches people. But evolution, but, but you don't believe that in any other area of life. Do you know how complex making things is. I tried to think of the simplest thing I could illustrate with, and I thought about my tie. Here's a plain red tie. Tie's not a complex thing. It's not as complex as a watch or, a, you know, one of those musical instruments. It's a piece of material that somebody cut and folded and pressed it out and stitched a little bit. Look what's on that tie. There's a white line, a red line, a blue line, a red line, another white line, a red line, and a black line. Do you think all those lines just ended up there? No, somebody designed that. They designed it. A tie required a designer. Do you think there was an explosion one time, a big bang somewhere in a cloth factory, and out pops ties? Ties require a designer. There's order on that tie. Every one of those little lines are equally spaced. How about that? 
You think it's just random spacing? Look at my hand. Requires a designer. Everything in the universe says that there was an intelligent being who had power and wisdom, and he designed this wonderful universe we live in. And then I want to go somewhere, and some doctor jerk wants to tell me and charge me money for him to tell me such stupidity. He wants to say to me, nothing times uh, nothing, let's see, how, how did I say it? Let me write it down here because I got carried away my preaching there against Dr. Jerk. <laughs> nothing times nobody equals everything. There wasn't anybody there. There's no God. And there wasn't any material. And yet, now we got everything. That's incredulous. To anybody who thinks at all. I mean, that's unbelievable that nothing times nobody times unlimited times equals everything. No. Look in your Bible, Romans chapter 1, and verse number 20. It's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible because it tells me that the greatest evidence of God is this creation, this world. And that's the basis of my biblical worldview. The basis of my worldview is that God created everything. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Now, you, most of you carry the King James here. I'm going to read it. I'm going to give you my interpretation of this verse. Romans chapter 1, and verse 20, as you watch it. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... Things like his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen in and through the things that he has made so that we are without excuse. From the beginning of the creation, you can tell what God is like, the invisible things about God that you cannot see with your human eye, but you know they have to be true because of the creation that he's made. What a powerful, powerful verse. Every cause or every effect has a cause. Every building has a maker. Every tie has a designer. Every watch has a watchmaker. And every universe has a God who put it together, designed it, and made it. And then God created us, man. And in Genesis 1.27, he says he did it in his image. Not his physical image, but his spiritual image. We think, we feel, and we act just like God. And that makes us unique because nothing else in the creation of, man, of the universe is said that it's made in God's image. And I'm unique and you're unique. And the scientists could take a piece of my flesh or blood and analyze it and he would look up he would find out what my DNA is. And there's 7 billion people on the planet and my DNA is unique. No, nobody has my DNA and I have no one else's DNA. I'm unique because I'm made in the image of God. I'm a special creation. 
And the first man, like me, rebelled against God. After as wonderful as God is, man rebelled against God, went his own way, disobeyed his word, and God loved him. And God sent his son. He actually became man himself. And through the cross of Christ, through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, God forgave man, all men, all women, forgave them their sin if they would come in faith and repentance to him. Isn't that wonderful? And because of that, I'm so grateful to God I owe him my life. He has first claim on me. Nothing should be put before him. If he made me and then he redeemed me, nothing, nothing should be as important to me as that. And so the basis of human dignity today, what is it, that, what is it about hum, human beings that we should treat them with respect? It's they're made in the image of God. Personal responsibility. God made me like him. Not to blame everything in my environment for my predicament, but to say, look, you have the qualities. You take responsibility for your life. Make something of yourself in life. And you can with my help. And personal fulfillment comes from knowing this and accepting this. Augustine, the great theologian, said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our souls will find no rest until they find their rest in you. You made us for yourself, and I can look everywhere else in the culture trying to find fulfillment. My soul will find no rest until it finds it in you. Why is what I've preached on so important? Because the country's torn apart. Secularism and rebellion and resentment of authority and hatred and anger and bitterness seem to be prevailing right now. Groups of people are trying to destroy our cities every night now for the last few nights. They're being paid to do it. Many of them, I found out, are being paid $15 an hour to riot because somebody has a worldview and they're unhappy. And over here's another group of people that have a different worldview. And so today we need something solid. We need a core. We need something that's unchanging. My hope is not in Donald Trump. My hope is not in Barack Obama. My hope is in something that is eternally enduring, the word of God and Jesus Christ who came to this earth for me. In 1909, there was a young man who was the heir of the Borden Food Company. 
he was going to be a billionaire by today's standards. His family completely owned board and food. And he got saved. He was a student at Yale University in one of the most prestigious families in all of America at the time, the Bordens. He went to Yale and while there met Christ and told his dad, I don't want the company. I'm going to be a missionary. And he was going to go, I think it was to India or China. I'm not sure of the country. But before he could get there, he was on board a ship and he contracted a disease. And he died and is buried in Egypt today. Before he died, though, he wrote a book or several books. And he was artistic. He wrote several poems. And there's been books written about him. The most famous one, Borden of Yale, 1909. The man who gave up one of the most lucrative positions in all the world to become a missionary and died before he ever got there. And you hear a story like that and you wonder, what was God doing in all that? Well, Borden of Yale wrote a poem about his life. And it so aptly describes where we are today. I wanted to share it with you. He said, on the far reef, the breakers coil in shattered foam. Yet still the sea behind them urges its forces home. Its chant of triumph surges through all the wondrous den. The wave may break in failure, but the tide is sure to win. O mighty sea, thy message in changing spray is cast. Within God's plans of progress, it matters not at last how wide the shores of evil or how strong the shores of sin. The wave may be defeated, but the tide is sure to win. And ladies and gentlemen today, the tide is what God says to be true, the Christian faith. The wave of secularism will break at some point, but the tide is sure to win. And I'm glad I'm on the right side today. Would you stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, in prayer and bow your heads for a few moments.